This episode of Wasteland may contain mature themes, profanity, and descriptions of sex, graphic violence, and criminal activity. Listener discretion is advised. Florida. The name makes you think of sunny beaches, smiling tourists, and sleepy retirement communities. Bustling theme parks packed with grinning children on parents' shoulders, miles upon miles of manicured golf courses, country clubs, and exclusive oceanfront property. It's what most people would call paradise. So why then does Florida have such a dark and dysfunctional reputation? Growing up here in Daytona Beach, I wasn't always aware of this duality, but as an adult, it's difficult to ignore it. It seems that the brighter the light, the darker the shadow. Maybe it's the heat that drives some to do things they would not otherwise do. Florida often competes with Texas and Arizona for record highs, so we don't have the monopoly on extreme heat. But it should be considered that our summers can last sometimes from April all the way until October. Couple that length with our unbelievable humidity, which routinely goes above 85 and sometimes 90% during the summer, and you have a mixture guaranteed to take both a physical and mental toll on a person. Perhaps it's the poverty rate, which, where I live in central Florida, has been on the rise since 2010. Of course, you could say that about almost anywhere, especially in the southeastern United States. Florida is ranked 29th in unemployment and 35th in overall poverty, which isn't the worst, but far from the best. However, we're ranked 39th in high school graduates, and that is a dismal statistic. Without basic education, people are unable to provide for themselves, especially here where there's little to no industry to speak of. Just the endless drudgery of customer service and seasonal event work Thankless jobs with thankless wages and hours produce people unable to put food on the table, and when people start to go hungry, they get desperate. It could be these things, but I also think it's something else. I think it's our willingness to accept those who have no other place to go. You see, our doors are always open because most of the state depends on tourism to survive, and while the beaches and theme parks cater to families and couples, once the doors are open all the way... Who visits and who stays is not up to us. This fluidity results in a very transient state of mind. Florida becomes a means to an end, a place to run to, a place to hide. But it's not your place. Every year, Florida is rented, borrowed, abused, and tossed away. As of 2012, only 36% of Florida residents are natives. That's a lot of guests, a lot of people from a lot of different places, all with their own ways of doing things, their own beliefs, their own hopes and dreams, their own demons. Each episode of Wasteland tells a story, a Florida story. Many of them took place not far from where I've lived my whole life, and I remember when most of these events occurred, and their proximity has always left me feeling a little uneasy. 
We often observe criminal behavior at a distance, thrilled by its drama, but quickly able to return to the comfort of our own lives. This podcast serves as my own personal reminder that just because the darkness is at bay now, that doesn't mean it can't eventually find its way in. I think we have a duty to those who fall prey to it never to forget that. If you'll allow me to, I'd like to shine a light on the dark underbelly of the so-called sunshine state. I think, when we're done, you'll find that it can be a strange and terrible place. Welcome to Wasteland. is the moment, your moment, to be bolder, closer, happier, not just to live life to the fullest, but to make it overflow, to seize the day, better yet, seize the Daytona. The beach at Daytona is so relaxing, almost healing. It's a really great town to be a drug dealer because everyone's on drugs. Every day, either before work or after work, I try to get down to the ocean. Because when I'm down here, it just rejuvenates me. There's nothing really to do but do drugs, so... I mean, it's right up someone's alley if they want to get fucked up all the time. The sky is blue, the air is fresh. The people are friendly, and everyone just says hello and enjoying the sand and the surf just like I am. Dirtona Beach, man. <laughs> That's the name that sticks. Daytona Beach is my hometown, the world's most famous beach. At least, that's what our signs say. A recent tourism campaign gave us the slogan, Seize the Daytona. The ads depicted a happy family running playfully down the sand, eating an expensive-looking seafood dinner, and watching the summer fireworks burst over the pier. It made Daytona look like the type of place where you'd be lucky to spend your vacation and even luckier to reside. And I'll admit, from a distance, Daytona does look inviting. Warm sunlight spilling over green palm trees, cool ocean water lapping the beach. The skyline is dotted with pastel-colored buildings and tiled bridges spanning the sparkling intracoastal waterway. But you have to look closer. There's something not quite right about a town funded solely by tourism. It's the geographical and economic equivalent of plagiarism. What you end up with resembles the real thing, but really, it's just a parody of work and ideas that don't belong to you. Daytona Beach is a borrowed place, and we give ourselves away at every opportunity. Bike week, Biketoberfest, race week, spring break. Every year, we're borrowed, used, 
and then left to clean up the mess. It should come as no surprise that a place like this develops a reputation, a place where the door is always open, a place where anything goes. Except for a few short years in my 20s, I've lived in Daytona Beach for my entire life, and I know this place as well as I can know anything. I see it almost as if it's a magnet, shaped like a town, and it pulls in only the most broken and damaged people out of their holes and into the sunlight. There are times when I speak about Daytona as if there's something terrible lurking just beneath the surface of things. Because in a way, there is. November 4th, 1989. 18-year-old Brian Chase stands over the sleeping bodies of Costa and Lisa Fotopoulos. In his hand is a gun. No one knows what Brian is thinking in the moments before he raises the pistol and shoots Lisa Fotopoulos in the head. No one, that is, but Brian. But it would stand to reason that under all the adrenaline and panic a first-time killer probably feels... He's thinking about how to spend the $5,000 he's been offered by a beautiful woman to commit murder. It's anyone's guess how much time passes between Brian entering the room and pulling the trigger, but at some point, there is a roar and a muzzle flash, like the world's loudest camera taking a picture. A picture that captures something that shouldn't be. Because this is a moment no one will want to remember. Costa Fotopoulos sits up in bed, his ears still ringing from the noise. He pulls a pistol from under the bed. Before Brian Chase knows he's dead, Costa shoots him. One, two, three, four times. Awakened by the shots, Lisa's brother Dino, who shares the large riverfront mansion with his mother and the couple, rushes into the room. Dino, call 911, Costa says. Lisa's been shot. Lisa Fotopoulos was born Lisa Paspalakis in 1960 to Augustine and Mary Paspalakis. Lisa's father, affectionately known as Stino, came to America from Greece. Like many men of his generation, he first came alone so he could make something of himself before he sent for his wife, which he did in 1957 when he became a bar owner in Charleston, South Carolina. But the lure of the Floridian beaches proved to be too much, and the family moved to Daytona Beach soon after. Stino worked hard, renting first a snack bar on the Daytona Beach boardwalk, then an arcade. Stino and his family prospered. He eventually started his own boardwalk business, the Joyland Amusement Center. And no boardwalk business portfolio would be complete without a gift shop. Stino named his after his daughter Lisa. She took over the business while still in high school and made it thrive. But Stino wouldn't have the daughter he doted on, nor his son Dino, toiling away on the boardwalk for the rest of their lives. He sent them to college. Lisa graduated cum laude from USF in 1982, then went to work in Tampa at an accounting firm. However, those of us who grew up here in Daytona Beach, we know that this place has a way of bringing you back. Lisa came home to take over the family business. Make no mistake, for her this wasn't a defeat. Her family had grown into one of the wealthiest and most successful families in Daytona's sizable and tight-knit Greek community, a community that congregated, and still does, 
around St. Demetrios's Greek Orthodox Church, a locally famous institution and the purveyors of our annual Greek festival. Of course, Stino and Mary were proud of Lisa's achievements, but aside from financial stability and community standing, they wanted to see their hard-working and successful daughter have a family of her own one day. And being from the old country, what they wanted, probably more than anything, was for Lisa to meet a nice Greek boy. When Lisa met Costa Fotopoulos, he was working on his master's degree in aeronautical science at Embry-Riddle University. Costa had emigrated from Greece as a senior in high school, first to Chicago, then to Daytona Beach to attend the prestigious Aeronautical College. Stino had arranged the meeting, taking Lisa to dinner at Lenny's Barbecue Pit, a beachside restaurant where Costa waited tables. They liked one another enough to go on a date later in the week. Both agreed they weren't looking for anything long-term. It was the spring of 1985. They were married by October. Though Costa's family back in Chicago were successful restaurant owners, marrying Lisa put him into the Paspalakis inner circle. After all, they were one of the most respected families of business owners in Daytona Beach. Now that he was helping his wife operate Joyland, Costa had access to a much more opulent lifestyle than the one of the struggling college student to which he had become accustomed. The book, Perfect Husband, by Gary Provost, written about the Fotopolis case, contains a telling scene. During their lavish wedding reception at the Hilton Hotel, Costa leaned close to his wife while they were dancing. He told her, You're only 60% of the reason I married you. When Lisa asked what made up the other 40%, Costa answered, Your family. By 1987, as is the case with many rushed marriages, Lisa realized that hers might be in trouble. Perhaps it was only knowing one another for a little over half a year before getting married. Maybe it was Costa's tendency to be much less outgoing than he was when they were dating. Or this new ability he had to suddenly turn emotionally cold and unaffectionate. Or it could have been the guns. One of Costa Fotopoulos' passions, perhaps his greatest, was guns. By 1987, he had amassed quite a collection, so much so that he began burying them in the woods behind his house to alleviate Lisa's worry. Lisa Fotopoulos was not a fan of firearms, and regardless of this odd solution, Lisa was glad to have less of the weapons in her house, though Costa continued to buy guns as well as make his own bullets and, unbelievably, his own silencers. Lisa took to calling her husband Rambo behind his back. The cause of the couple's brewing discord could have been any of these things, but perhaps it was Costa's resentment at working in the shadow of his wife's boardwalk empire. He wanted something of his own. Costa proposed the idea of what would become the Top Shots pool hall to his less-than-excited wife. Lisa thought such a place would bring the wrong element to the beach. She had a personal stake in keeping the boardwalk a family-friendly place, but Costa was not to be deterred. In the Greek tradition, for the wife to wield all the financial power in the marriage is not a common practice. On June 25, 1989, Top Shots opened its doors and almost immediately became synonymous with the denizens of Daytona Beach, a place families and any upstanding citizen would do well to avoid. Top Shots became the preferred watering hole for the underbelly of the world's most famous beach. Prostitutes, junkies, 
and an all-around rough crowd made up the business's only clientele. Though Lisa was vindicated in her predictions, she acquiesced to her husband's obvious desire to make a go of the place. Perhaps she understood Costa's concern over his role in their marriage and just wanted to see him happy. Or maybe she knew that reasoning with him just wouldn't work. Though Joyland Amusement Center and Lisa's Gift Shop are still operating on the Daytona Beach Boardwalk today, Top Shots is not. I didn't start going down to the boardwalk until I was in high school. By the time the place became one of my normal teenage haunts, Top Shots had long ago shut its doors. There are a lot of bars in Daytona Beach that probably look just like the bars where you're from. Granted, bars are dimly lit, but it's usually to impress a relaxing mood upon the customer, not to hide the ugliness. But then there's the places off the beaten path, the places where the norm is bare bulbs dangling from the ceiling, warped and creaking floorboards covered in sand, and a customer base of the most desperate and broken individuals. People distinguished by day laborer tans, fading jailhouse tattoos, and track marks. Hard-edged women float about the frame of this seedy picture, looking for anyone who might have the cash to pay their bar tab and, in turn, might be willing to go somewhere for a little privacy. This was Top Shots. For anyone familiar with the case of Eileen Warnos, I don't think it would be much of a stretch to speculate that maybe, just maybe, Eileen stopped by Top Shots every now and again. Of course, I have no proof of this, But Eileen did spend November of 1989 through November of 1990, leaving a trail of bodies all over Central and North Florida. She did also spend a significant amount of time in Daytona Beach, where she was finally arrested at a bar called The Last Resort. And, as anyone who knew her could tell you, Eileen was quite fond of a cold beer, drunk in questionable surroundings. She was the very definition of the type of people Daytona attracts, At the end of her sad and bloody story, she was just another broken child who found her way to the beach and lost what little of herself she had left. But just like the allure of the beach contrasted against this rotten underground of grifters and castaways, Top Shots had its deceptive crown jewel atop the refuse as well. Her name was Deidre Hunt. If I could turn back time and do things over, I would have never came to Florida. Born in 1969 in South Weymouth, Massachusetts, Deidre was the polar opposite of Lisa Fotopoulos. Her upbringing was hard, marked by an absent father, an abusive and mentally disturbed mother, liberal use of alcohol and drugs, and several rapes. Deidre was once even stabbed by a would-be sexual assailant. Though stunted at every turn, Deidre grew up to be a pretty young woman. Of course, not the wholesome type you would bring home to meet the family, more of the dark and dangerous type the type who had seen too much. Before she was 20 years old, Deidre was in total freefall, plummeting through a sordid life of petty crime, promiscuity, and substance abuse. In July of 1987, Deidre was alleged to have participated in the attempted murder of one Veronica Rudzinski in Derryfield, New Hampshire. Deidre's friend Bridget was with her at the time, and Deidre identified her as pulling the trigger. This earned Deidre a reduced sentence of six months in jail, but Bridget walked as the surviving victim didn't identify her at trial. When Deidre was released, 
For a short time, she seemed to have righted the sinking ship that was her life, but it was to be a very short time. After her newest boyfriend beat her until she miscarried their baby, like many other lost and disaffected youths before her, Deidre headed south with the Daytona Beach boardwalk in her sights. Our area attracts runaways and always has. They say some kids come here to go to Disney, but they end up at Daytona Beach with no money. They're more or less living on the street. Maybe it was inevitable that Deidre would wind up waiting tables at Top Shots. It certainly seemed the type of place she would hang out, and the rough customers were already leering at her anyway. Why not get paid for it? As Deidre settled into Daytona's nightlife, she became known to the boardwalk crowd as Cherry. An attractive young woman like Deidre could not go unnoticed for long in this squalid environment, least of all to Costa Fotopolis. Much like Costa's whirlwind romance with Lisa, he didn't waste any time securing Deidre as his mistress. No longer having to act the part of the doting, hard-working husband, Costa had finally found a woman he could completely reveal his darker side to, a side that Lisa, nor anyone in her family, had even the slightest inkling of. It turns out that Costa wasn't just an avid gun collector and an amateur munitions manufacturer. By Deidre's account, he was smuggling the weapons. Not only that, but from his prime spot on the boardwalk, Costa was dealing in counterfeit currency and pimping. He began using Deidre to help him procure young girls that he could put to work as prostitutes. For the first time, Costa didn't have to hide who he was from the woman he was sleeping with. This level of comfort may have led him to make some of his more outlandish claims, namely that he was an assassin trained by an Israeli terrorist group, as well as a contract killer for the CIA. It turned out that Costa was neither of those things. However, he was a criminal. He had surrounded himself with criminals. His new paramour was, herself, a criminal. But even though his underground reputation as a man to steer clear of was growing, Costa still attempted to keep up the facade of the respectable husband and business owner. Lisa was unaware of Costa's criminal dealings, but when it came to his infidelity, she was far too shrewd to be fooled. She suspected Costa was cheating on her, and after repeated attempts to get him to come clean, Lisa decided she wanted a divorce. For anyone else, this bleak turn of events might have been a wake-up call. But where others might see a last chance to salvage a marriage, Costa saw opportunity, a solution to a growing problem. Criminal though he may have been, Costa Fotopoulos wasn't much of an accountant. By the summer of 89, even with all his illicit balls in the air, Costa found himself in debt to the tune of $18,000. He needed money, and he knew where to get it. evidence points to the Hunters and Killers Club being just a figment of Costa's imagination, just like his supposed CIA connections. Whatever the origin, Costa's fantasy soon turned into a deadly reality. Costa confided in Deidre that he had committed eight murders as a member of this so-called Hunters and Killers Club. To become a member of the clandestine society, the new trigger man or woman had to be videotaped while committing a murder. 
Then another member of the club would keep the tape to ensure the initiate's silence and dedication. Costa told Deidre he wanted her to join. What he really wanted was leverage, someone he could control for what was to come. Deidre, smitten with Costa, agreed. Her victim? 19-year-old Top Shots bartender Kevin Ramsey. Kevin Ramsey was privy to his boss's many illegal operations and had assured Costa he would never breathe a word. But, as it turned out, Kevin wasn't going to keep his mouth shut for free, and that wasn't going to work for Costa. The infamous videotape footage of Kevin Ramsey's murder at the hands of Costa and Deidre is readily available on the internet. Almost every copy of it points to the location of the murder being in the Everglades. However, it seems quite a stretch that these two would drive Ramsey over 300 miles south to kill him when Volusia County is crisscrossed by miles upon miles of forest and swampland. It seems a stretch because it is. It isn't true. What happened next occurred a short distance from the Strickland shooting range where Costa often practiced. Strickland sits in a wooded area near Tomoka State Correctional, which itself sits on the edge of Tiger Bay State Forest. It's only about a 12-minute drive inland from the boardwalk. Costa and Deidre lured Kevin into the woods on the promise of inducting him into Costa's Hunters and Killers Club. Kevin allowed the pair to tie him to a tree as some sort of hazing initiation. At almost 30 years of age, the video footage of Kevin Ramsey's death is a bit grainy now, to say the least. The visual is not as shocking as you would think. But it's the sound Kevin makes that remains after the footage ends. The sound he makes when Deidre puts three rounds from a 22 into his chest, then another in his head. The video cuts off before Costa delivers a final and unnecessary finisher, an AK-47 round into Kevin's skull. Truly, Costa Fotopoulos now had his Hunters and Killers Club, but the members' roster consisted only of himself and Deidre. And with video footage of Deidre committing a murder, he now had the power to get her to do whatever he wanted. Allegedly, Costa stood to gain $700,000 in life insurance if Lisa died, and he had everything to lose if she left him. His success on the boardwalk, top shots, all of it was due to his wife and her family's wealth. If Costa allowed the divorce to go through, he would become a penniless nobody. Just one more loser on the underside of Daytona Beach, just like the ones his business catered to every night. With Deidre now neatly in his pocket, Costa and his deadly mistress began plotting to kill Lisa Fotopoulos. Deidre floated the contract to at least three different individuals, boardwalk regulars, rough men she thought would be in no position to turn down the $10,000 she was offering. But there were no takers. Not until Deidre got around to 18-year-old Brian Chase. I've only been able to find one photograph of Brian Chase. He was looking distractedly out of frame when it was taken, giving him an air of plain dumb innocence. And that's really the best way to describe Brian Chase. Under his mop-top haircut, he just looks too innocent to have gotten wrapped up in such an insidious web of murder for hire. According to some of the Top Shots regulars, Brian was just that, a good-natured, easy-going, small-town kid. He was, by all accounts, a generous young man, who was well-liked and came from a decent family. His innocence, however, made him easy to manipulate, and this weakness was something that Deidre could smell from a mile away, like a shark homing in on blood in the water. Brian was infatuated with Deidre, and it didn't take her long to convince the naive young man to kill Lisa Fotopoulos. No doubt she made promises to Brian, promises she had no intention of keeping. On November 4th, 1989, 
Brian Chase dies on the floor of Costa Fotopoulos' bedroom after being shot four times. Who knows what goes through his mind in those final moments? Is it Deidre? Could Brian know that she and Costa planned to murder Lisa's assassin, whoever it was, all along? Is he even capable of processing this doomed irony as he lays dying? Perhaps mercifully, he isn't. Costa watches as his wife clings to life, bleeding from the bullet Brian fired into her head only moments before. Lisa's brother Dino calls the police. Soon the paramedics take Lisa away. She is miraculously alive, though she may not be for long. Costa explains the night's events to the officers on the scene. The dutiful husband, above reproach, guns down the home intruder, possibly saving the life of his poor injured wife. What other story could possibly make sense? It turns out that the detectives assigned to the case came to know better. Despite Costa's financial motive to have Lisa out of the picture, it was his braggadocio and tall tales that placed him under police suspicion. In the days following the crime, Costa bragged about killing Brian Chase, among other victims, likely more of his imaginary Hunters and Killers Club assassinations. Lisa survived the attempt on her life. And while she recovered from surgery, it didn't take her long to start putting the pieces together. She was planning to divorce Costa for the affair he was having with Deidre. She would strip him of everything he held dear. But it was when she told detectives about Costa's peculiar habit of burying guns that all signs began to point toward her husband. It didn't take long for officers to start digging around on the Photopolis' property. It was in the barbecue pit that police found the gun used to murder Kevin Ramsey. They also discovered a videotape. Now that the damning evidence of Kevin Ramsey's execution had been uncovered, Costa Fotopoulos' entire world came crashing down around him. But he refused to acknowledge reality. Costa stubbornly maintained that he had nothing to do with Kevin's death or the murder plot against his wife. This even after Deidre confessed and led police to what was left of Kevin's body. The wheels of justice turned quickly. Three days shy of the one-year anniversary of Lisa Fotopoulos' attempted murder, Costa Fotopoulos was sentenced to death. His mistress and co-conspirator Deidre Hunt had received the same sentence less than a month prior. Deidre, however, would escape lethal injection in 1998 when she was resentenced to two terms of life imprisonment. Lisa Fotopoulos still carries the bullet Brian Chase fired into her brain. It has not prevented her from making a full recovery and getting remarried. Her ex-husband remains on death row. Some of my research was taken from an episode of ID Discovery on the Fotopoulos case entitled A Violent Love. There is one scene where the actor is portraying Costa and Deidre, and I'm quoting the narrator here, step onto the boardwalk and survey their kingdom. Now, the producers of this episode did include actual footage of Daytona Beach, but it's this scene meant to evoke a grand operatic feeling that I found to be the most telling. The boardwalk these actors stroll down isn't Daytona's, but a much nicer and cleaner one. 
Lamps with working bulbs march away into the distance, providing illumination in the deep shadows thrown by several lavish-looking resort hotels. I can only assume the producers felt that the actual backdrop of the Daytona Beach boardwalk just wasn't good enough. Since Costa's heyday, the Daytona boardwalk has come a long way. It's nowhere near as seedy and dangerous as it once was. Of course, when Hurricanes Charlie, Francis, and Gene tore through Volusia County over a six-week period in 2004, the boardwalk took its licks just like everywhere else. It was like the storm tore away all the superficial improvements and exposed the raw face beneath. It was like traveling back in time, back to when the boardwalk wasn't such a bright and hospitable place, back when it was filled with the ghosts of all those castaway kids and bottom dwellers who moved in and out of each other's lives, never to be heard from again. The months after the hurricanes ticked by and Daytona rebuilt, and it wasn't long before the boardwalk once again shone out onto the Atlantic Ocean like a hopeful nightlight, its dark and shameful past so briefly glimpsed and then again forgotten. But I never forgot the darkness of 2004. It was a look at something terrible just under the surface. Whatever it is, it draws people to this place. People like Costa Fotopoulos, Deidre Hunt, Eileen Warnos, and every nameless drifter trying to get someplace where no one knows who they are. It's still here. You can see it if you look closely. Provided it's dark enough. This episode of Wasteland was researched, written, produced, recorded, edited, and in some areas, scored by me, Michael Paul Anthony. If you'd like to contact the show, the email address is wastelandpodfl at gmail.com. I want to thank you for listening, and if you like what you heard, please share it with a friend. Until next time. <laughs>